You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. This evening's scripture reading comes from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though he, the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to start something new this week. If you have, hopefully you saw in the weekly email, uh, if you have a fourth, fifth, or sixth grade student, or if you're a fourth, fifth, or sixth grader, uh, once every three weeks, we're going to just start letting you guys out during this time of the sermon. Uh, you'll either go with Patrick or Yale Gozier. They're going to be taking you uh, this Sunday or Caleb or Emily Ward. Uh, so if you guys want to start, it's torch day. Uh, so we want you guys, uh, we want our children to be learning uh, to sit in a, a, our, the service with us, to be observing and be uh, learning an expectation of worshiping together uh, as God's body. But we also want them, uh, these fourth through sixth graders who are graduated out of Christ Church kids to also have an opportunity to once every three weeks just begin to build relationships with each other. So we'll see you guys at the Lord's Supper after. All right. Let me ask the Lord for his help now as we hear from his word. God, we do want to hear from you. We do want to learn from you through your word. Uh, Help us to always choose it. Help us to always love it. Father, we pray that we might see you more clearly this evening by coming to your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, many of my favorite movies are the ones that you're just sitting there watching for the first time and thinking, "Eh, all right, this is a pretty good movie. Engaging plot, decent character development. This plot, it's, it's going somewhere. I'm more or less engaged here. It's a decent movie. But then something happens near the end or at the very end that you just never saw coming, and it pulled back the curtain on the entire story that you had been watching. At the end, you see that there's way more going on in the movie than you ever had thought. Think of like all of the good M. Night Shyamalan movies, right? Uh, And then there's just been a whole bunch of good like psychological thrillers in the past couple of decades. You actually need, you want to go back and watch again. You want to understand and appreciate the levels that you missed the first go-round. Well, what you just heard Crystal read in John chapter 2 is an M. Night Shyamalan movie. 
Only we don't even really realize it yet. The twist will come as we progress through the book and then certainly at the end of the book. There's certainly a lot to learn and appreciate from a first and cursory reading, an understanding of this wedding feast in chapter two. But if all we get from this is that like Jesus is pro-marriage or that he likes to party or that Jesus endorses alcohol or perhaps even that Jesus' miracle is even that more impressive because he made this into like a non-alcoholic delicious grape juice. Uh, Well, all of those things are just missing the point. Tonight we're going to look through our text in this wedding at Cana in two parts. First of all, an unexpected crisis and then a surprising solution. And as we do so, I think that we'll see that there are deep and ironic levels to this story under the mere narrative, how Jesus actually meets and satisfies our deepest needs. So first of all, let's check back in on verse one with an unexpected crisis where John paints the setting. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now there's been a whole lot of theories on what what John is talking about with this third day thing. But none of these theories are altogether clear from the text. So I tend toward thinking this is just another detail remembered by an eyewitness, likely the gospel writer John who was with Jesus here at this wedding. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there as well. Having not included a Christmas narrative, a Christmas birth story in his gospel, this is the first time that John makes reference to Mary. Philip told Nathanael earlier in chapter 1 that Jesus, son of Joseph, was the Messiah, So in both of these references, John is reminding us that Jesus is not just some being from heaven that just appeared on earth, uh, but he's a human being, son of Joseph. His mother Mary is with us. And as we've seen and will continue to see, there's actually much more to Jesus than that. There's even more going on underneath than we even know with him. But Jesus, his mother, his growing number of disciples are invited to Cana, which as we find out in chapter 21, this is Nathaniel's hometown. Nathaniel from last week, we're going back to his hometown. Cana isn't too far from Nazareth, so this is likely some family friend of Mary or Jesus who's getting married here. So as big a deal as weddings are in America, let's multiply that by like a thousand in first century Israel. After a publicly announced betrothal period, uh, huge preparations would have been made for months for this party. A party that could last up to a week. You think it's a big deal to commit to showing up at like an hour and a half, maybe even a 30-minute wedding ceremony, and then you have to like drive across town and party for like three more hours, and then it's 10.30, you're like, when's this thing over? Uh, Sometimes you feel this way, right? Well, how about committing to a week-long party? Week-long! Giving thoughtful and carefully considered gifts would have been a way to bring honor to the couple and to the families, not just like finding like a $15 thing on the wedding registry, like to just placate people like when you show up, right? But like, no, you thoughtfully, there's no wedding registries in these days, right? Uh, So I must thoughtfully think about this couple. What might they need? What might show them honor in my giving? In fact, the families, the receiving families could pursue legal recourse against you if you weren't very thoughtful, if they thought your gift brought shame on this couple. 
This is a different world in these days than we live in, a day of, and culture of honor and shame, one that still exists in parts of the world today, in which we receive frequent reports from our workers and friends in North Africa of how they're learning to operate in this kind of culture of honor and shame, one that really doesn't exist in our culture, one that's difficult for us to relate to. But all of this adds important context to what happens next. Verse 3, when the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. We're not sure why Mary's so concerned about this. Perhaps she was involved in the preparation of this party. And for the wine to run out so early uh, might bring shame upon herself. Perhaps she's close friends with, or at least respects the families, the host of the party. And she knows that to run out of wine would have been an unexpected disaster on the reputation of these families, even for the rest of these families' lives. The bride's parents, uh, even some of the guests, could end up suing the, the groom's father, suing the groom's family because of the shame that running out of wine would have brought on this new bride. So Mary runs up to tell Jesus about this all-out crisis that is about to unfold. And I'm not convinced that she expected him to do something miraculous at this point. The stories that we have of Jesus doing like miraculous things as a child, like he finds these clay birds and he like tells them as a six-year-old to come to life or something like these. These stories are almost certainly centuries later and they're untrustworthy tall tales. But Mary, Mary had likely up until this point never seen her son do something powerfully miraculous. But being that Joseph was almost certainly dead at this point, her eldest son, Jesus, had become the man of the family. Like any widow in the first century, Mary had undoubtedly learned to lean on her eldest son to be resourcefully uh, provisional, to, to make things happen. Not to mention that he would have always, in every experience with her, uh, responded to any kind of trouble in a patient and God-honoring way. So maybe... He's always, he's always holy. He's always righteous. Maybe he'll know what to do. But then Jesus responds to his mother in a pretty surprising way. The, the ESV, which we're reading from this evening in verse 4, says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Which sounds super disrespectful, right? Uh, pretty offensive because we never, unless we are intentionally being disrespectful and offensive, call someone woman. Perhaps a better translation here is dear woman or even ma'am. Jesus will later refer to his own mother Mary in this way as he's dying on the cross. He's not angry and upset with her as he's dying and just says woman, right? He's dear woman as he calls three other women throughout the gospel, uh, throughout this gospel as woman. So he's not being uh, disrespectful. He's not angry or upset with his mother here, but it is an intentional word. Jesus is likely saying, you are my mother, but dear woman, you don't even know what you're asking. There is way, way more here going on at this wedding than you even know. My course is set for me. My ultimate authority is God. It is him and his timing, not yours, mother, but more dear woman that I must obey. So when he says, What does this have to do with me? He isn't being rude. He isn't saying, why are you bothering me, woman? But rather, and literally, he asks her, what do we have in common? 
Or as one commentator has paraphrased his question, how can this matter that concerns you be of mutual interest to me? I understand that this is a potential crisis of reputation here, but dear woman, my hour has not yet come. Like Peter and James and John and the rest of the disciples will later find out, there is no inside track to Jesus, even with his mother. It doesn't matter what your last name is, how long you've been following Christ, what church you go to, how deeply you understand the Bible, how impressive your reputation is within the community. Everyone approaches Jesus in the same way. Or as we've said several times before, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Mary doesn't just get to roll up and claim her maternal authority over Jesus and just make him do something. And on this Reformation Sunday, this anniversary of 500 years of what Martin Luther started and sparked those years ago in Germany, it's good to be confronted right here in the text that Mary is no pseudo-deity. She is no different than any other human being. She is godly, she is humble, she is even blessed in a unique and special way, but she even has no inside track to Jesus. And in an incredible model for us, she tells the servants then to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. She seemingly first came to Jesus as his mother with a demand, but then she leaves him, trusting him to do whatever he thinks is right. But what in the world, though? He said, what's, what's the deal with this? My hour has not yet come. Hour of what? What does that even mean? And when will it come? Well, throughout the rest of the book, Jesus is going to keep talking about this hour. He talks about my hour or the hour at like 11 times by my count. And as we go on our first reading through the Gospel of John, we don't quite know what he's talking about. But the anticipation is building. And I think that's exactly what Jesus and John, as an expert recounter of the narrative, is doing here. He doesn't tell us quite what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus doesn't quite tell us what he's talking about. Both are whetting our appetite. They're piquing our curiosity. What is he talking about? My hour of what? And then even in John 17, when Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. We're still not quite sure what he's talking about. The hour's come. Sweet. Yes, this has been building for a long time. Here it comes. But in a first reading of John 17, what is he even talking about there? Well, spoiler alert, it's his hour of glorification, his hour of being lifted up and exalted because he is actually lifted up on a cross to take away the sins of the world. A bloody and shameful cross. The hour has not yet come. But this is still really confusing, right? Mary comes up to him and says, hey, we've got a reputational crisis about to unfold. And then Jesus says, dear woman, my time to die is not yet. Well, here's our first real indication that there may be something much deeper and unseen going on. And as the plot unfolds, John will begin to drop the breadcrumbs toward where this whole thing is heading. So we had an unexpected crisis. Now Jesus is going to offer a surprising solution. And I'm going to read this again, Jesus' response. And at first it seems like actually what he says isn't that surprising. There wasn't any wine, so Jesus made wine. Presto changeo, problem solved, right? 
Well, let's begin to look for deeper meaning as we read. Verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though his servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept this good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So Jesus does this thing. Everyone's really impressed. Not necessarily just at the quantity of the wine, which there's a lot, but its quality. To maintain their honor, the family would have likely spent a good deal of money on some pretty decent wine. And then out of water, Jesus makes wine that is far superior to the old, the old one. The master isn't necessarily here indicating that everyone at the party is like far too plastered to understand that this is good wine or not. But it's just common sense, right, to serve the good wine first when everyone's senses are heightened, not dulled. So the timing of what Jesus does and the inferiority of what was served first before Jesus intervenes is probably telling. But then after all of this, John tells us that this was Jesus' first sign, which manifested his glory John prefers to use this word sign rather than the word miracle that Matthew, Mark, and Luke use all throughout their Gospels. What Jesus does at this wedding is indeed a flashing neon arrow pointing to who he is and what he has come to do. It is a sign pointing to him. And it is a sign that has manifested his glory. John told us in chapter 1 that to see Jesus is to see the glory of God the Father. And this is the first indication that we are seeing God himself. It's not just a magic trick. He's not just changed water into wine. We have seen the glory of God here. But if it's not just a magic trick, what is it? Well, our first clue is where all this is happening in the first place. It's at a wedding feast. Outside the Bible, from other writings of the time, when Jews reflected on and looked forward to the time of Messiah, the scene of the wedding banquet was the most frequent go-to. And there are literally hundreds of allusions to banquet language and imagery throughout the Old Testament. And in Joel 2, which Clint read in our call to worship, there are vats overflowing with wine. Or like the language of Isaiah 25, where there is a feast of rich food and well-aged wine. And all of this indicates the coming messianic kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah. So this isn't just a magic show here. The, the kingdom has arrived here at this wedding feast that Israel has been waiting for. The Savior, the Anointed One, the one to deliver God's people has arrived. He's here. But our second clue to what's going on is the jars themselves, which John gives an interesting editorial comment about. He says in verse 6, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification. He didn't just tell us there were six jars. He told us what these jars were for. And in Mark 7, we read that the Pharisees would have used jars like these at the entrance of a house or a place where food would be served. So, 
If you're going to come in and eat, you have dirty hands, you need to cleanse your hands. And so you would walk in, this is kind of like a a, a wash basin, a, a place to wash up. So you'd walk in, wash your hands, cleanse yourself. If you have any plates, cups, or utensils, you dip these in here and cleanse those as well before you come in to eat. And it was important that these jars would be stone, not clay. According to Leviticus 11, earthenware vessels or pots could become clean, unclean themselves, like chip apart, uh, and thus contaminating the water. So anything in use to purify or clean yourself itself must be clean. Has to be stone. So what's likely going on is, is that there are six giant stone jars standing over by the entrance to the party, and everyone who is present has first washed up at these jars to be ceremonially clean and pure. And these are the jars that Jesus goes and fills. He could have miraculously just refilled everybody's goblet, right? Everyone has an empty wine glass, presto changeo, filled up, done and done. He could have changed the entire well themselves. The, the disciples go and they fill and draw these jars uh, from a well. Why didn't he just change the well? Like, God's done that in Egypt before, just changed all the water into blood. Why didn't he just change the well into wine? Instead, and not incidentally at all, Jesus identifies and uses these jars. And he has disciples, his disciples fill them to the brim. We could be forgiven for not seeing all this on our first reading of John, but if this were our second, our third, our fourth reading throughout the gospel, it'd be like watching the sixth sense a second time or a third time. You know the ending. You know what the themes are throughout the book or the movie, and so now you see something that you missed the first time. That scene is so much cooler now, knowing what we know at the end of the movie. And over the next many chapters, Jesus is going to put himself over and against and in fulfillment of the entire system of Judaism, which had missed the point that they were to be expecting something greater than their present system. Jesus is here as the Lamb of God who is to take away the sins of the earth. He walks into a world of darkness which is hostile to him. He walks into a world of Judaism which had devolved into mere moralism and empty religion and says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. He's coming to bring something new, a fulfilled and new world order. He comes saying that the old way is over. It has been filled to the brim, to the top, I've fulfilled it, and now it's done. I have fulfilled the purpose of all of these things, and it is done. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Not just clean hands. So that's why when Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine, she knew better than she even said. Jesus must have heard and maybe even sighed and thought, I know, I know they're empty. They don't have what they ought to be looking for. But what I've come to do is far greater than any of you here, even you, dear woman, could understand or yet even imagine. And over the next several chapters of John, Jesus is beginning what perhaps Paul will reflect on in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul writes, the old has passed away. 
Behold, the new has come. The old is done and fulfilled. The new has come. You thought the old wine was good, but that's just because you hadn't tasted yet the new wine. You thought that God would be satisfied with some external purity, some hand washings before you'd eat. Wait until I use the very jars that you thought could cleanse you and make them obsolete by announcing that the kingdom that I have come is a kingdom of internal cleansing, of the very washing, not just of your fingernails, but of your very soul. But how often are we no different than Israel of old? As represented here in this wedding party, I think these wedding guests represent their entire nation, their entire way of operating with God. But we're often no different, content with the old wine of just ceremonial purity while missing out on the actual party of grace. Our attempts to work our way into righteousness, our attempts to work our way into God's acceptance is just the default mode of our heart. It's what we do naturally. We assume that God will be happy with us as long as we keep the outside looking good and clean. Without real love for him, we can tend toward thinking as long as we do what we think that he wants us to do and stay away from the things that we think that he doesn't like, then everything will be all right, especially if those in our lives observing us just see cleanliness. But this is exhausting. And actually never really achievable, is it? I recently heard someone compare this way of thinking to that of our dominant hand. If you're you're right-handed, using your right hand is easy, right? It's natural. You don't have to think when you write. Uh, It's reflexive. Like if a ball gets thrown at you, you just pop up your right hand. You don't even think about it. You defend yourself with it. You can use your right hand for tasks and just use your right hand a million times today without thinking at all. But the way of grace, the way of Christ arriving, intervening, the way of Christ announcing that he is the Messiah, that the kingdom is here, and then providing at his coming hour everything that you need, his life for yours, his death for yours, his righteousness earned for you so that you are now free to live and love God out of gratitude and joy rather than of working towards your acceptance, well, that's left-handed stuff. Think about sitting down with a pencil and paper and trying to write out a paragraph with your undominant hand. It takes work, doesn't it? It takes thoughtful, slow intentionality. It requires you to act and then react slowly, not just reflexively. Living gospel-centered, grace-motivated lives isn't the natural right-handed bent of our hearts. Like learning to, learning to write with your left hand actually takes time, it takes practice, it takes years, if not multiple, multiple decades of our lives to learn to love the new wine, to love the gospel of grace, to be satisfied by the new wine, and then not just going back to the natural uh, bent of our hearts, then what comes easy towards working for our righteousness, but then having tasted for so long after many decades the, the joy and sweetness of God's patient love for we 
hopelessly meritorious workers, having tasted that, then the speed of our lives, the the motives of our lives, the desires of our hearts begin to slow down as we respond to grace. We begin to thoughtfully and intentionally order our days into the way of grace, into the kindness of the Lord. Not reflexively, not a right-hand reflexive mode of the way of working. So when life throws a ball at your head, that of unexpected sickness, unemployment, some bill or financial burden that you weren't prepared for, rejection by a romantic interest, rejection by friends at work or online even. Life throws a ball of unexpected temptation, perhaps even a period short or long of loneliness or sadness. The default reflexive motion is toward trying harder. Stop being sad. Fix myself. Stop acting this way and just be clean. Be godly and pure and then he will be pleased with me and everyone will think that I'm really godly. But the slower and intentional reaction, the gospel left-handedness is that of God is real. He is light. He has revealed himself to me through Christ. He has loved me through the life and death of Jesus. He has forgiven me of my sin. He has adopted me as his son or daughter. He has provided and given me all that I need for joy and contentment. Slowly processing all of these things so I'll trust him. Since he has purified me within, I can respond externally in thankfulness and in grace. But just like the wedding party tasted this amazing new wine and then actually missed the point of it, I'm afraid we can too. We have tasted grace and then revert back to the old wine, the old right-handed way of attempting to save ourselves, of attempting to purify and make ourselves clean, to be righteous enough for God to finally be happy with us. Well, Christ Church, taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good, that he knows you, that he loves you, that through Christ he has brought and is bringing the kingdom of God in the world and in our own hearts, that through Christ he has bringing a kingdom that is actually going somewhere. The wine of Joel 2 that Joel looked forward to is actually accompanied with the coming Holy Spirit. The banquet of Isaiah 25. Isaiah continues to look forward to the final and full wedding banquet of the Lamb. And this is what Jesus is starting here in John 2 with his turning water into wine. Listen to this from Isaiah 25. What Jesus begins here in John 2, this is what's happening in Isaiah 25. On, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, the, the darkness of this world that we've seen in John 1. Jesus is coming to remove that darkness Isaiah says he will swallow up death 
forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Christians, this is what we will say on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is our Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Mary and the disciples need to wait a little bit longer. They don't quite understand what the way that Jesus has come to save them, what his salvation actually looks like. But together with them in glory, we will, with Mary, with John, with Philip and Nathaniel, say, this is our God. He has begun this banquet. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. At this wedding at Cana, Jesus is announcing, at this point, subtly. Remember, we we probably missed a lot of this in our first reading. He's being subtle here, but he's announcing who he is and what he's come to do. But it wasn't lost on these early disciples. John, the disciples, they saw this flashing neon arrow that day, and they believed. They saw the first sign, and they believed. Still not quite understanding the fullness of what they were believing, but they believed. And if you're here today, it's no accident. God has brought you here, whether you are a Christian or even a member of Christ's church. God has brought you here to continue putting signs in front of you, to point you to Christ, his death and resurrection on your behalf. If you're not a Christian, it's no accident that you're here either. God has put the Messiah, he has put his way to save you, to forgive you, to welcome you, to adopt you into his family. He's put the Messiah in front of you today. And just like God used signs to point to the Messiah, everything that we have done here this evening is a sign pointing to the Messiah. We hope you've seen him. Don't don't look and dwell. Just as the disciples and these people at the feast shouldn't have looked and dwelled on the signs. Jesus is going to rebuke uh, all of these people that are coming to him for more of the signs, for getting hung up on the signs. Well, if you're here... Uh, Don't look or dwell on individual songs or confessions or professions or prayers or sermons or even the taking of the Lord's Supper. These are good things, but they're signs pointing to Christ. Look to Christ. Use the signs to point your gaze to Christ. These are arrows for you to look and live, for you to taste the new wine of the gospel of grace, for you to taste and see that he's good. If you're unsure about any of this, what a life of left-handed life, if you're left-handed, then right-handed life, this kind of left-handed life empowered by the gospel of grace, by his spirit, what any of this looks like or actually means, would you come and talk to us after the service? We're learning too, day by day, year by year, Decade by decade, all of us are learning to live not out of instinct and the reflexive uh, works righteousness mode of our heart, but to thoughtfully, slowly learn to live as gospel-centered, spirit-empowered Christians. And we'd love to talk to you about how we've come, where we're going, and what this might look like in your own life. For the rest of us, taste and see. Taste and see. What we're about to do in the Lord's Supper is not 
actually Jesus' body and blood, but God was good and kind to us to give us a visceral reminder, a visceral sign, just like he gave at this wedding. They might taste something, taste and see the sweetness of this new wine. And in fact, we've got wine and juice here, and we'd encourage you to do however your conscience leads you. Uh, Calvin has some interesting thoughts on wine, on why there's something viscerally important going on in the wine. You can simultaneously taste the bitterness of the wine, the wrath of God poured out on Jesus, and at the same moment, taste the sweetness of the wine as well, the sweetness of the forgiveness of your sins, the adoption of your orphaned state into the family of God. Taste and see, however you'd like, whichever you'd like, These are not the blood of Christ, but these are visceral and good reminders. What it tastes like is forgiveness. He has come. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. He has brought a new world order full of grace and kindness and mercy and love. Let's thank him for it. Almighty God, we have no business approaching you. We have no business on our own, approaching you in our sin. We certainly have no business approaching you in boldness and in confidence. But because of the new wine, because of what Jesus has come to fulfill the old ways and to bring a way that you might not just make us acceptable, but make us confident sons and daughters, Do the rights of the inheritance, even of Jesus, as he is our older brother, that of sonship, of daughtership, of being heirs of the kingdom, of living with you forever, of having our sins forgiven, all of these things, we now respond in confidence, in boldness, because of what Jesus has done, the new way of grace. Father, might we, each day, a little more each day, Might the old default mode of our hearts of working, of appearing righteousness, or of appearing righteous before other people and appearing righteous before you, might that die a little more each day as we more each day trust in what Jesus has done for us. Perhaps for the first time tonight, might someone here die to the unending and never satisfied pursuit of being clean, of working their way into acceptance, and instead turn to the sweet wine of Christ, of his life and death on our behalf, that we might be sons and daughters. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www dot Christchurchabq.com.